Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. If you were 51% courageous and 49% afraid, you you were in pretty good shape. I don't remember any fear that was freezing fear, you know, where you just can't, couldn't move. I, I don't remember that. So I was fortunate that, and most of the guys had the same thing, able to react under, under circumstances where it was required. Welcome to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Hi, this is Bob Bach. Welcome to another conversation in our series of segments in the Stigma-Free Vet Zone. Our guest today is Mike Orban, joining us from his home in West Bend, Wisconsin. Mike is a former soldier who served with the Army in Vietnam in 1971. He is author of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War. Mike has spent much of his life reaching out to veterans and family members through a variety of projects, including the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Many acts of kindness and caring, I must say, born of his own experiences. Mike, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Wow, thank you, Bob. Thanks for the great introduction. Well, it's all facts. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start as we do with all of our guests in our format, and that is a description of your life, your upbringing, a life before entering the service. Oh, I'd be happy to. I'm actually the fourth oldest of 10 children. Grew up in a, the city of Holmes, Wauwatosa, mm-hmm. suburb of Milwaukee. Family of 10, very strict Catholics. Enjoyed most of the things as a child, football, baseball. Loved going to watch the Braves play. My hero when we had tickets for right field was Henry Aaron. I loved to go there. We would get one ticket for a bleacher seat, a Coke and a hot dog about five times a year. And that was our, that was something I always looked forward to. But I also had a fascination with Africa and National Geographic when I was young and loved to go to the old Washington County Zoo, or I think it was called the Washington County Zoo before it became the Milwaukee Zoo. Loved looking at the animals and always felt just very, very sad for them, all being in their cages, beautiful, beautiful animals, and, and they're just roaming back and forth in these tight little cages, especially after having seen them in National Geographic. So family life was normal until I was about the age of 14. And then uh, with 10 kids, my dad decided to divorce my mom and left uh, with his secretary. 
So from there on became a lot of trouble. I quit sports, took up a job, and our, our family just was on, on the way down to a really, really dark spot. Really, um, I, I'm not sure what the word is. Just a disintegration of the family. Still one of the most tragic things I've seen. So you had this, certainly what sounds like with the ball games and the hot dog and all that. So you had a kind of a wonderful predictability to things. And then all of a sudden, the floor just came out from under you. Is that how it felt? Well, it did feel like that, Bob. But more importantly, it came out for the younger kids. I was 14. So I had a little bit of stability and a little bit of security and a little bit of direction. But it was very, very hard on all of us when my dad left. My sister ended up spending her years until 18 in a reform school, brothers and sisters who didn't complete grade school, others who didn't complete high school. But yeah, it, it was very, very difficult. How about you? Did your high school years provide any stability? No, not at all. In fact, I quit school. Uh, for the most part, quit school or was, or was asked not to come back to school, I think, eight different times. And not because I caused trouble, not because I was doing anything. I just didn't go to school. So I think what happens when you come from a divorce as nasty as my parents is that you your sense of purpose or what's important in life changes. There's no such thing as high school and you know going to read about William Shakespeare does not become real important and who Thomas Jefferson was doesn't really become all that important or remain important. There's more a survival instinct, which you're not aware of, more of a depression. You just don't understand. You know, I remember thinking to myself that eventually my parents are going to get back together. I was absolutely convinced of that. In retrospect, there was no way they were going to get back together. My dad was already remarried. So it was just the, the view of life, the vision of life, expectations all changed, and school was not an important one. Were there any guides for you during that time? Anything that you could pin hopes on or find some solace in? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I, I took a job delivering car parts for a man, Louis Kasperzak. He had an electrical engineering degree from Marquette University, had opened up his own car repair shop up on Appleton Avenue. And he dealt with a lot of the race car drivers. I remember Emerson Fittipaldi coming in and Louis would help him with the electrical system on his race cars and all that. But he also had an engine rebuilding shop in the basement. Uh, my job was to, and this is when almost every corner had a gas station and every gas station had a mechanic. And I would pick up parts that needed to come into the shop to be repaired, valve jobs, that sort of thing. And then I would deliver car parts, exhaust systems, batteries, tires, whatever they needed, brake shoes. He was, and remains to this day, one of someone I'm very, very grateful came into my life, but he was a great, great guy. He was very, very honest, but he was very, very tough. He wanted you to work hard. He never lied. I never saw him lie to a customer, no matter how difficult things got. If a job had fallen apart, he was always honest about it. I just had enormous respect and he was a guiding light for me. Absolutely. Well, needless to say, though, without formal high school, much less college, in those years, people of our age will certainly remember that you were leaving yourself vulnerable, some would say, to being drafted. Oh, I, that would happen? Oh, absolutely. I was vulnerable to it. My father was a World War II veteran. My brother, older brother, had already enlisted in the Army and was very, very happy to be in the military. He joined the paratroopers, 82nd Airborne Division. And I remember him on leave coming home and everything was all the way, sir, and spit shining his jump boots and all of that. He really enjoyed it where I had no ambition at all to join the military. But I think more importantly than that, Bob, one of my very good friends came from a wealthy family, one of three children. His older brother was paralyzed from a diving accident, but he himself was very, very intelligent. 
and he had a full scholarship to West Point and Annapolis, and he turned them both down. Mm-hmm. And we had talks about that. But what, what, what I found out was they would receive the Chicago Tribune, the Milwaukee Sentinel, Milwaukee Journal every day and on the weekends. And at night, at dinner time, they would discuss what was going on in the world. He was very aware of what was going on in Vietnam. He was very aware of the different policies and if it was right, if it was wrong. Where in a family of 10, our discussions at the dinner table never got beyond you know, what you did that day, what you were going to do tomorrow. It was just really a mass conversation. So there was never a political what's going on in the world sort of conversation at our table. So I didn't know until I was drafted anything about the Vietnam War. I didn't know where Vietnam was. I would have guessed Asia. The furthest I had been by the time I was 18 years old, by the time I was drafted, actually at 19 years old, was down to the Illinois border with my dad to buy margarine. <laughs> uh, because it was illegal to buy sell margarine in the state. And once with a good friend, I had been up to Lake Nebagaman up near Superior for, for a weekend to visit his grandfather. Other than that, I couldn't have even told you what, what the capital of Colorado was at the time. So a very, very shallow, narrow life view, worldview at the time. Into any of this, do you recall feelings of patriotism particularly or love of country, any of that kind of thing? I think that was all there, not not standing out as something distinct, but there was always, I do remember this when I was drafted, there was no question that I was going to serve in the military. There's no question that I was going to honor that decision by the government to draft me. You know, I thought about it, but I'd never even questioned it. Yes, I'm going to go. I'm drafted. That's just the fate of Mike Orban at this time, and I'm going into the service. I, ne- I never would have gone to my dad and said, I'm going to be a conscientious objector. That, <laughs> that would have been more dangerous than going to Vietnam. So it was there, but not as strongly as it might have been for my brother who wanted to actually join the military. So the day comes that the draft letter says you must report at so-and-so and such-and-such time. And what happens after that? Well, I remember the postman delivering the letter and he actually handed it to me. He was a nice guy. He knew me and he, you, know, you can tell by the look on his face. <laughs> I'm not sure how much he liked me, but he handed me the letter and I got it. And sure enough, the day came. You know, my mother had 10 children, so, and she loved us all. She was a very, very good mother. There's no question about that. But I think she was you know, dedicated at that time, they did all the laundry at home. They did all the baking at home. So she couldn't dedicate that much time to sit down with me and, you know, put me down next to her and say, oh, I love you so much and all that sort of thing. I, I just implicitly, instinctively knew my mother loved me. But I did go to the induction center down in Milwaukee and got on the bus and went to Fort Campbell, Kentucky for basic training. And how was that? The bus rider. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about <laughs> Fort Campbell. <laughs> thinking about the basic training, you're coming from a life of, uh, although you did have a rather strict influence with your employer, but other than that, you were sort of a pinball here, bouncing off of different flippers of life, I guess you might say. And now you're entering the army and it's, it's I would assume, considerably different than what you had experienced. Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't say it was a pinball effect. I didn't feel like I was bouncing all over the place. I felt I was on a path that I just had to absorb every second and whatever came was something that was, it was not up to me. I was going where I was being guided. So getting there, of course, you know, meet the drill sergeants for the first time. And it really wasn't that severe. Basic training wasn't that hard for me. It was organized, disciplined, you know, the the typical drill sergeant yelling at you, but I I had played sports most of my life. I had four brothers and an older brother that loved to beat me up all the time. And so uh, basic training wasn't that difficult physically for me. It it was more the emotional struggle of what's really going on. Where's this leading to? But I, I have to admit at the time, Bob, 
the war in Vietnam was winding down and there were very few people being sent to Vietnam anymore. So there was really no talk about going to Vietnam while I was in basic training. There was really just more development as a soldier. At the completion of basic training then, is that when you received what is sometimes referred to as your your military occupational specialty or, or your job or what you would be assigned to? I did. I received it very quickly when they sent me to Fort Polk, Louisiana for infantry training. <laughs> yeah, there was no question where I was, uh, what I was going to be doing, sure. So, I, you know, but I went to Fort Polk, Louisiana, was trained in combat field medicine. I was trained 50 caliber machine gun, the M60, the M79 grenade launcher, all the military weapons, the mortars, the tactics, what to do in an ambush. All the military training was there. And going out on a couple of, I forget what they call them, two or three days out in the bush kind of thing, survival things for two or three days. So again, it wasn't really physically a struggle for me at all. And there is a fascination, I think, with technology in learning what these weapons are. You know, it, it changes when you find out what you have to use them for. But I wasn't that put off. But more importantly, there still was no real sense that we were going to Vietnam. You know, when did that come? When, when did those orders arrive? Well, after infantry training at Fort Polk, Louisiana, the majority of us thought we were all going to Germany. That's where everybody oh. was being sent at the time. There was one company in our battalion that was getting orders for Vietnam, and I happened to be in that company. <laughs> <laughs> so right at the end of advanced infantry training or advanced individual training, whatever AIT stands for, they told us that we would be getting a very long leave. We'd get to go home for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. And on the 2nd or 3rd of January, 1971, we would be going to Vietnam. And was that a direct flight? Do you recall that at all? Did you fly from here to there or did you stop on the way? We stopped on the way, but that's when, at that point, when we got orders for Vietnam, I still was, there's something in your mind, and I don't know if it's a protective device or reaction. I still was not that intimidated by this. Hmm. You know, okay, so the war's slowing down, but we're going to Vietnam. But it didn't really strike me that way. So that, yeah, then we, we took the flight, went to Travis Air Force Base in California. And from there, well, I made that flight, boy, I don't know, three or four times there and back. So uh, Okinawa, I think at one time, Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, and then into Benoit, always into Benoit, in and out of Benoit, South Vietnam. Which was near Saigon, was it not? Yes, a little bit to the east, not that far east. Long been, long been in Saigon. We're just, just east of Saigon. So what was it like then arriving in Vietnam? I mean, you had spent considerable amount of time really wondering if this was ever going to happen, and now, now it has. What? Right. And, and there's still, again, there's still something in your mind that said, it's not that bad, it's not that bad, it's not that bad. But I remember getting off the plane in Benoit, and they just had a small little shack with the door on each side of it. One was for the guys leaving Vietnam who had spent their time, had done their tour of duty and were going home, and the other line was the other door was to go into the shack for the guys arriving. And I was, that was when the horror started to set in because the guys that were, were leaving were in a line getting on the plane that we had just disembarked from. Mm. And as they were coming out, we looked at their faces and they were so worn out, so drawn out, so unhappy. They just looked very, very war-torn guys. And, and they were in their fatigues. We were in the brand new green stateside uniform. And I saw them going out. They didn't talk to us. They didn't really say anything. There was no happiness on them, you know, no cheering, no welcome. Hey, guys, you know, there was all just a couple guys going back out and they would put their finger and their thumb together and say, you know, about an inch, a quarter inch apart and say short, short, which meant that their, their time was short. They were going home. But that's when I noticed that something we, we were starting to go somewhere. 
we've seen images of soldiers and Marines leaving Vietnam and they're they seem to have a hollow look in their face, yes. in their eyes. Is yeah. that what you saw? And that's what we saw. And the majority mm-hmm. of them were walking out like that. And they weren't even, didn't even look like they were good comrades together. They just looked very, very worn out. That's all I can say. I mean, mm-hmm. like they had lost weight, emaciated, not, not sickly emaciated, but just, just weathered and worn and tired. And yes, what we would eventually call it the thousand yard stare. A lot of them had that and, and just walked right past us. So what happens next? What happens next? (laughs) Go to the 92nd or 93rd or 91st replacement group over at Long Bend, Vietnam, short bus right away. Now we are on a bus that has all metal mesh on the windows for safety. We we don't have any weapons yet. And I am there with one other guy that I knew from basic training and from AIT. He was from Milwaukee. We went together. And the 92nd or 93rd replacement group is where they would separate you and assign you to a division. And at the time, most of the guys were going to one of three or four divisions, the 101st Airborne, 1st Cav, 25th Infantry, that sort of thing. So we were we were assigned to, I think we were there three days. I was assigned to the 1st Cavalry Division, and my friend was assigned to the 101st Airborne. And he went way up north, and I went to a firebase called Firebase Mace, which would have been central South Vietnam. And from there, this was the interesting part for me in retrospect. I had come from advanced infantry training, flown all the way to Vietnam. I'm still on my own. I'm, I, I'm reporting into to the battalion, then into the company. I'm going to Firebase Mace, which is a large base where the helicopters were, were stationed, the Hueys were stationed. Then I went to a forward firebase at Firebase Fanny, I believe it was. And that was getting closer to the front all the time, the front as it would be in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And I still don't know anybody. I'm checking into the battalion there. And then I'm assigned to a company and I go from the fire base. I get on a helicopter. I get out into the jungle to be assigned to the company that I was in. And I did not know anybody. I did not arrive with anybody. And it was there that I was first introduced to the guys in the jungle, on the battlefield, where at any moment this could have exploded into a battle was the first time I met these guys. What was that like? Eerie, because I I just never expected that. But again, I, I don't know what to expect anywhere along the way. So everything I'm doing is unique. So being unique, this is just the way it is. But now... Now we're starting to get a little bit closer to, you know, this is not scratch football anymore. Were you welcomed by your comrades? Were they happy to see you? Was there any reaction whatsoever that might be considered friendly and and, uh, inviting? No, no, absolutely not. Again, that's something... Not really. They they weren't rude, but no, they didn't come up and all greet me and, hey, how you doing? My name's so-and-so, my name's so-and-so. I think there were two guys that came up and, and greeted me. And one of them was really assigned to greet me, to get me used to things, you know, give me give me the the mm-hmm. tour of the place, <laughs> the tour of the little jungle that we were in. And it kind of introduced me to all of the disciplines that were important for, for me being there. So as time went on, or maybe I should phrase it this way, over what period of time was required before there was some give and take and some friendship that seemed to develop? There, there really never was over time. I mean, there were a couple of guys that you become very close friends with, no question about that. But a lot of them, and I'm not sure why, and I wasn't really that anxious to become friends with them. It was more, and I know you've heard this, a lot of soldiers have heard this, it was more your responsibility to the safety of everybody else that you were there. What their name was didn't really matter. It was a matter of you're a soldier, you don't want to, you don't want to die, you don't want to be killed, and you don't want to be responsible for these guys being killed. Plus, we were in the jungle all the time, so we had to maintain extreme noise discipline. 
So you, you weren't out talking to anybody. And when you did, a lot of times the, the, the conversations in the jungle were, were orders that were given by, by the hand, you know, a motion of the hand to be quiet or to get down or to move out or, or that sort of thing. Otherwise, any conversations, you had to be very, very close to a person and just whispering. I think of all the things that I learned, it was those disciplines that the first soldier who was assigned to me to welcome me to the, to the company, his assignment was to teach me these disciplines, the things that were very, very important to the security of everybody else, which would be, of course, noise discipline. So it never, never really did. You know, I, I could even go on to say by the end of my tour, you know, 12 months later, I would only know the last name of maybe three guys. Mm-hmm. I would know other guys by their nicknames or their first name or that sort of thing. But you just didn't get close to people. How long was it from the time that you arrived in the jungle with this new group until you began to encounter the enemy and, and do the things of war? Not long at all. We were there. I know this may sound odd. I never saw a rice paddy in Vietnam. We were always up in the mountains, always in the jungle and dense jungle. And we would have to cut our way through the jungle with machetes. By the time I got there, following trails, established trails, because of ambushes was pretty much just a foolish thing to do. In fact, a lot of guys just wouldn't do it anymore because they they were so vulnerable to, to ambushes. So we hacked our way through the jungles in the rainy season, in the dry season. But I don't know time-wise. I know that I wouldn't get a leave until... My first leave, seven-day seven leave, was in June. And by then, we had had significant firefights. So I, I would say I don't, maybe a couple of weeks. It, it wasn't that long at all. In the meanwhile, the element of, of fear or, or, or terror, when did that set in? You know, it's hard to say because nothing really came as in flipping on a light switch where all of a sudden you recognize you're scared. But I think the battle between fear and courage was there all the time. You just had to realize that, and I, I, I'm not even sure of this, it's not like a conscious decision. It's not like you've got a police officer or a psychiatrist in your head explaining what's going on. You're just following these things. And, and I have to admit, we were very well trained because our training seemed to stand out. This is what you should be doing. And I appreciated that. Were we afraid? Yeah, I always came back to thinking about it more. If you were 51% courageous and 49% afraid, you, you, were, you were in pretty good shape. I don't remember any fear that was freezing fear, you know, where you just can't, couldn't move. I, I don't remember that. So I was fortunate that, and most of the guys had the same thing, able to react under, under circumstances where it was required. Did you have enough of what you needed? Were you supplied properly with food and ammunition and all the things that you would be required to have on hand to do your job? Yeah. At the time when they say that the U.S. Army was one of the best in the world, they weren't kidding. Yes, we were supplied every three days. We would find an opening in the jungle and the helicopters would bring in a fresh change of clothes, no underwear, but a fresh change of clothes, pants, shirt, t-shirt, and and long sleeve shirt and a pair of socks. And of course, our sea rations we had, water, ammunition, whatever other resupplies. And of course, the ever, ever important mail call every three days. And there were times, a couple of times where we were in such dense jungle and we were required to go in support of another company that was taking fire, that was in a firefight. And they needed to get us out of there and get us to this other place. There was no landing zone for the helicopter. So they dropped something called a daisy chain, I think, or a daisy cutter, which was like a 2,000 pound bomb or 5,000 pound bomb. And it was instant landing zone. <laughs> and it, it would blow these trees, these Okumi oaks that were you know, three, four feet in diameter. 
at least they appear to be that. Just like a game of pickup sticks, they're just falling on the ground. The helicopters would come in and uh, land right on top of those and resupply us. But resupply was always good. There was only one time that we couldn't get resupplied with water. And to this day, water is my favorite drink. And it's the thing that I have the most respect for in the world when it comes to food or, or, or liquid is water. How important that was because I saw almost an entire platoon almost give up their self-defense just to plunge into filthy, dirty water after four or five days without water. But as a rule, yeah, very well supplied. Mm-hmm. Well supplied and well supported for if we were in trouble, there were you know, the medevacs and all that sort of thing. Did you come to a point, and if so, early or later, when you began to question why you were there? And what oh, you were that had, yeah, that had happened before we got there. Uh-huh. There was a sense right when we got off the plane, when that door opened and you smelled that fuel in Benoit and you got off the plane, you could just tell by the atmosphere that there was nobody. And, and this would become very, very important to me psychologically. There was no belief in a mission there. there nobody believed in a mission. Absolutely. I'd never heard anyone say, you know, you, if you watch the World War II movies, you see Patton saying, we got to stop Hitler and I'll get that carpet hanger and all those other things. I never heard anybody say, we got to stop Ho Chi Minh. Not even any secondary description of something like that. There was nothing about, we got to win this war. We got to win this battle. Everything was simply, there's really no purpose. In fact, it became well known that we were out in the jungle doing what would become known as search and avoid missions, you know, not engaging in combat. And, and those were orders we had. If you find the enemy, don't, don't engage them. But was Why was that, Mike? Again, I didn't know at the time, but I would find that out 30 years later when he found mm-hmm. out the war was winding down and they didn't want the heavy casualties. So we were actually out there fighting a war when the war technically not actually was over. And that, that became very, very hard for us. What about fatigue and just some other physical situations like that? Did that set in early on as well? Fatigue, physical or mental? Well, I would say both. I, I was never mentally fatigued. I, mm-hmm. I, in fact, I was also always felt I was very sharp. Physically, not really. I, I always felt good. I lost a lot of weight, but I never, I don't remember ever feeling sick mentally or physically. In fact, when it came to, I became so familiar with sleeping in the jungle and our hypervigilance to safety in noise discipline, in visual discipline, in taste, in smell. All these disciplines were on high alert. So when I would go to sleep at night, of course, in the jungle, it gets dark very early because of the heavy canopy over you. So it gets dark at five and and gets light very late. So, you you know, there's 12 hours where you're not moving around because we typically did not move at nighttime. So I would go to sleep on the jungle floor. We always slept on the jungle floor, you know, scrape away a little of the leaves and sticks, anything that would, you know, as was it Fenimore Cooper's stories with the <laughs> you're rolling on a stick and breaking the twig and all that sort of thing. We didn't have that, but that was a discipline you had to learn. Don't roll over in the middle of the night and make noise. So you'd clean everything away from the ground, get yourself down to bare dirt and sleep there. But I remember sleeping very, very soundly physically and waking up very, very refreshed. And yet the entire night, my mind was awake. I could mm-hmm. hear everything going on in the jungle. I could hear animals in the jungle. I could hear the soldier coming to get me for guard duty in the middle of the night, long before he ever got to me. So I would say physically and mentally, I stayed pretty sharp. And, and, and I, don't, I don't blame that on the sea rations. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like it was a, literally a, a day-to-day existence. You were taking 24 hours at a time. And is that what it was like? Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't even say 24 hours at a time. It, it was it was day against night. It was one day at a time. And then the night and then the following day. 
And we would stay out in the jungle for, for several weeks before we would go back to the forward fire base for three days to pull security for the artillery and mortars and then go back out in the jungle. So we were not back on a base every night. It was, there was one time I think we went 30 days without coming out of the jungle. Your, your question skipped me because it, what was the last part of the question? Well, just how it was such a, I guess you'd call it an existential experience. I mean, you're living one day at a time. And Yeah, I think one of the things that I recall was that you were there for 365 days. When you're there at the beginning, 365 days is an eternity. It's beyond really your ability to feel that or sense what that really is. And it wouldn't get be until you get down to maybe 60 days or 90 days that you start realizing there's a chance I might live through this. There's a chance I can get home. And those last couple of months would become extremely difficult. Or they could be if you, if you let your imagination wander with it. So you never lost, it sounds like you never lost your sense of hope or faith that you would survive. Oh, I lost my faith. Not that I would survive, but there were some very, very traumatic things along the way that it wasn't a matter of my faith. I never remember thinking that I was going to go home. In fact, there were many times that I thought, I'm, I come from a family of 10. I've got four brothers. It just makes sense that I'm not going to make it to go home. You know, you, that, that your mind plays those games on you. I, I thought there was a good chance I wouldn't make it. But you really don't know until you actually make it. And then you're kind of surprised that you do. Uh, <laughs> but there were some events along the way that that were very, very difficult, yes. We are visiting with Mike Orban about his experiences before and during his tour of duty in Vietnam in 1971. Mike, I'd like to move along, if you don't mind, and, and ask what coming home was like for you. You would take it from when you received the orders to leave Vietnam to actually arriving back in the United States. What was that all about? Let me just share three little important stories quickly, because that really frames the day that I remember leaving Vietnam. And one was on Easter Sunday, a priest came out into the jungle to say mass for us. And I was a very strict Catholic, you know, prayed, all that sort of thing, you know, confession heaven, hell, and all that sort of thing. And he gave a sermon. And in his sermon, he said that yesterday, a couple of soldiers from another battalion had been killed. And he looked at us and he said, now I want you to go get two of them. Oh and I'm, yeah, and I'm, I'm at church and I'm, and I'm looking at him. And I remember thinking the rage, it was like this metal shield went down between me and God. Religion, just all of a sudden, God was gone. Religion was gone. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to take my M16 and stuff it in his hands and say, you know, if you want him dead, go kill him yourself. But then I also realized I was going to church with hand grenades on my shirt and a loaded machine gun. The challenge between would you give up the machine gun and pray that nothing will happen while you're visiting God? No, you wouldn't. You took the machine gun. So my faith was destroyed right there. Another time we were in elephant grass and we heard movement and voices in Vietnamese and we opened up with machine gun fire and went on to find out that we had killed a man and his son who were just poor peasants out looking for firewood. And I remember standing over him and seeing that face with the Ho Chi Minh beard and the, the ragged old clothes and that would go on to haunt me for I, I can still picture it if I close my eyes. And, and another event in a firefight that went on for the better part of an afternoon into dark, where, of course, it stopped at night because we didn't fight at night unless we had to. But the, this particular firefight didn't go into to all night. And I remember that ending. And in that firefight, there were helicopters kicking out footlockers full of ammunition to us because it, it had been going on for so long. And I remember how grateful I was to the helicopter pilots and the door gunners that were so courageous to hover over a firefight when they could be shot down. Mm -hmm. But then the following morning, we were assigned, a couple of us were assigned to go out into the perimeter, look for body count. 
and we came across one of the Viet Cong who was killed, and, and, and he was just so destroyed, his body. And of course, you have to do the, you know, go through, make sure he's not booby-trapped, make sure that he's, that he's dead. But there was something about looking at that man and his son who were dead, and something about looking at that Viet Cong soldier in particular who was dead, where there was a connection of, and I, I, I still don't know how to say it, you, you saw him dead, but what he had given up is what you were protecting. And that was your, your will to live. You wanted to live. And the cost was you see what he gave up. And, and you almost had a comradeship with him because the whole game was about what he lost and what we still had, what we were still fighting for. So you had those experiences with just the insanity of war. But it was, I think it was more the, the constant hypervigilance for 12 months that on the day I left Vietnam, I remember thinking to myself, and I have a picture of myself that shows the thousand yard stare I remember thinking to myself, I'm going home to life as it had been before the war. And I honestly believe that. You didn't find that, did you? Oh, I didn't. Oh, and I was absolutely shocked when I got home to Wauwatosa. It was immediate when I walked in the house. I was just different. I didn't care what my family was talking about. I didn't, I wasn't happy to be around. I, they were all excited and, and, you know, wanting to jump and hug you and kiss you and hi, you're home. And I couldn't have the noise. I couldn't be around them. I wouldn't let them behind me. And I immediately understood that something was wrong with me, but I didn't know what. Hmm. What about your brother that was in, I believe you said the 82nd Airborne, but did not go to Vietnam? Was, And I don't mean this to sound disrespectful, but was he a bit envious of you? I don't know. We've never had that discussion. Hmm. Uh, we've never had that discussion. He was not there when I came home from Vietnam, but we never talked about that. I, hmm. I don't know. I, I would think so. But at the same time, the 82nd Airborne was on something called rapid response duty, I think it was, you know, where they're, they're ready within 12 hours or 24 hours hmm. to go to any emergency around the world. But I would guess that he would have preferred that he had gone, but we never had that discussion. You know, these experiences that you cited briefly of basically death and destruction, all impacting a 21-year-old individual, let me add, it's a remarkable boxcar load to bear mentally. Did anyone in your family or in your circle of friends express an interest to reach out and, and connect with you about how you, about what you experienced and how you might be dealing with that? Never about how I was dealing with that. No, they never really asked about it. To tell you the truth, I started isolating right away. I was staying away from them. I wasn't visiting people. I started spending time in the tavern right away. I was cold. I didn't have any ambition for anybody. It was like my brain just didn't care about anything. I never saw any of my friends who I had known from first grade on. I did not see them for 30 years after I got home. I, I just, I did not, there was not one thing Bob, that I enjoyed before the military, that I enjoyed when I got home. And, and, you know, I was starting to immediately have anxiety attacks and panic attacks and nightmares. And I'm walking around the city of homes, looking behind trees to see if somebody's there, you know, hypervigilant, walking up past an alley and looking to see if anybody's there. The noises would get me. I couldn't be around a lot of activity. I've never been to a concert uh, because I can't take the crowds and the people, but I didn't understand why. And that, that was really, really bad. In Vietnam, when we went to sleep every night, we would 
take a claymore mine and ambush the trails with a tripwire so that if somebody were on the trail at night of Viet Cong and hit that booby trap, that would blow that person into unrecognizable pieces. Mm -hmm. And, you know, many nights we had to go to sleep and I, and I was just so fearful that somebody would walk through one of those because I, I would just feel so horrible for, for that person. But, you know, 20 years old and you're setting booby traps to kill people at night was just all part of that mystique that was just wearing you down emotionally. When I came home, I think it just got to the point you just didn't care anymore. I didn't care about anybody nor anything. Never went to see another baseball game. One of our previous conversations with a veteran by the name of Joe Campbell, Joe described coming home and basically saying, not out loud, but saying to people, if you lived through what I did in Vietnam, you'd want to be in a bunker and stay there too. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. In listening to your descriptions, did you find a bunker to uh, put yourself in, figuratively speaking? Well, the bunker, a mental bunker for me was just avoiding people, avoiding my family. I mean, I was married at the time. I got married on, on my leave and my marriage ended almost immediately because there, there was just no ability for me to let anybody beyond my outer skin because what was inside was in such turmoil. Mm -hmm. I didn't know this at the time. I didn't even know who I was anymore. And there was nothing inside that I wanted to share with anyone. So the only thing that I could offer was whatever kind of facade I could make up on the outside. But I, I, I think my bunker right away was, was drinking. I would drive around. I would have a, a bottle of vodka and a, a little cooler with beer on the front seat. This sounds like a troubling way of life, to say the least. And it sounds, it sounds <laughs> yes. extremely lonely. Oh, my goodness, the isolation. It was the isolation, but a lot of times, the only way I could describe it now in retrospect was I was physically getting older, but mentally stuck at that time at war. And I had things like rage inside of me. A lot of people say they were mad. I had rage. It would be like somebody taking a syringe full of rage and putting it directly into your bloodstream. That was just, I, I can't even explain it, except it was just a rage I can't explain. It was so hot and, and almost nuclear. But then the loneliness, the isolation, the, the depression, the guilt. I would see this man that we had killed by mistake, the disgust. I hated the human race, but whoever thinks to themselves, I hate the human race. I mean, I wasn't even aware of it, but so disgusted in the human race, what they do to each other at war. So I had this whole series of reactions that were just one after another spinning around in my head that I couldn't isolate and resolve at, a, at any one particular one. So it was, I described it as my mind was like a computer that was overloaded and shut down. It, it couldn't process what was on it and it couldn't absorb any more information. So I had to make up this whole life for people to, to say hi and be friendly with them. And turns out the best friends I had were people that would drink beer with me in the bar. Mm -hmm. And in the meanwhile, these feelings that you had, what, what were you doing with those? Just stuffing them down deeper? Drinking them down the drain, sure. Mm -hmm. Everything I did was a matter of trying to mask those, trying to bury them, trying to not think about them. Sleep was a horrible issue for me. I couldn't sleep at night. I couldn't get to sleep. Beer and, and alcohol were helping me to get to sleep at night. And I was not going to talk to anybody about this. I was not going to showed that there was any problem. I, I never heard, had heard of the word stigma, but again, in retrospect, there was no question that that stigma was strong for me. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a soldier. Nobody is. My dad was in World War II. My brother's a paratrooper. Nobody's ever going to know that I did not uphold my responsibilities as a soldier without any flaws. Did anything in your training prepare you for these experiences? Absolutely not. In fact, even to this day, I have a, a lot of disrespect, anger for the mental health profession. 
that they could allow somebody to come home from some experience like this and not have any preparation. If we stop and think about the training that we got to go to, to war, you know, they, they gave us battlefield medicine training. They, they showed us how to load a weapon, how to unclog it if it's jammed. They showed us how, what to do if we're ambushed. All this training we had. Imagine if you didn't have that training and you went to war and somebody said, well, go help that guy with a second chance. Well, I don't know what to do. Well, then, you know, load your M16 and go defend. I don't know how to do that. They would say that you're mentally ill. You know, what are you doing here? And that's the same as I was at home. I didn't have the training. And, of course, everybody was referring to it as mental health issues. Do you think I'm a soldier coming from my background going to tell anybody I have a mental health issue? No way. So I was bearing it, denying it, doing everything I could to put on a pleasant face. But the pleasant face was only the minimum amount of time that I would be in public. We've been visiting with Mike Orban, Army and Vietnam veteran, activist, founder, and participant of many and varied outreach efforts to veterans and their families, and really a privilege to talk to you today. Mike, thank you for joining us. Oh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Bob. Thanks also to our recording engineer, Kate Ostrakhan. Let me invite you in for part two of our conversation with Mike. You can find part two everywhere that podcasts can be found. And to our listeners for joining us today, by all means, thank you for tuning in the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. This is Bob Potter. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Our program is produced by Blueberry Pro Productions. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.